Good morning. Our passage this morning is from John 6, verses 1 through 21. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, He told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, "'It is I. Do not be afraid.' Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. We are coming to a story that is very popular. Woo, hello. Uh, in the Bible, this, this story of Jesus feeding the multitude is, is written across all the gospel accounts. Every single one of them has this story, but if you read them all, you would notice that each author, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they... Uh, emphasize some details, some don't. They, they give more attention, more concern to some parts of this scene. Others don't as much. And so you read across these Gospels, and you'll notice same story, different emphases uh, in the story. And what's that all about? Why is that the case? It's because each author of, this, of, their, of their Gospels has an agenda. They have a, a, a purpose in mind, a message in mind, that they are attempting to get, a, to get across their audience. They're trying to appeal to their intended audience with their specific particular agenda. Each one of those has those. So John has an agenda. This whole gospel has an agenda. What he's trying to show us, us readers, through Jesus' life, his ministry, his words, his teachings, is that we can truly live, have real fullness of life, if we live in the truth if we take on Jesus' claims, if we test his claims in our living and in our doing, we can actually experience fullness of life in God. Not perfect. That's not possible, not to glory. But we can actually, in this life, have a satisfaction and a contentment and a joy that is real and lasting. That's what John wants to show us as he presents to us Jesus and all of his doing. And you'll notice in John's gospel, more than any other gospel, John teaches us this truth through symbols, through metaphor, and through story. Like, how are we supposed to understand spiritual things? Unseen, things things we can't put our hands on, right? Spiritual realities that we are invited into. How are we supposed to comprehend that? The best way we comprehend spiritual things is through metaphor, is through illustration, it's through symbols. And so we are called to understand the message here through symbol, 
through miracle, through sign, so we can get an idea of what Jesus is actually inviting us into. And that's really what I want to press on you today, is it's really possible, not for the person next to you, not just for pastors, not just for ultra-Christians, but for everyday common Christians. Each one of you here who believe in the gospel and are filled with the Holy Spirit, it is actually possible for you to have a intense, incredible, real, intimate relationship with Jesus. It's not for ultra-Christians, it's for you. We think that's radical, we ought to normalize that. It's normal, it's expected. Ephesians 3, be strengthened in your inner being through the Holy Spirit, through faith, so that what? Why is the Holy Spirit indwelling us who are believers? So that we can understand what is the height, depth, breadth, and length of the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Wow. Filled with the fullness of God, it says. Like, God's love is infinite. It's a resource that is inexhaustible, and Paul isn't playing a trick on us. He tells us it is really possible, like really truly possible for each and every one of us here who are Christians to know that love each and every day. That should be normal. And so that's what John is inviting us into through the gospel, through his gospel, through the story of Jesus, through this feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on water. So I'm excited to talk about it with you guys today. Before we do that, Let's come to our Father now and ask Him to help us and, and, and be with us right now. Father, we want to believe that You love us, that You have a sincere invitation to each and every one of us. We, Lord, we want to believe that You can really heal us and restore us on the inside, that You can mend our wounds and remedy our struggles. Lord, You want to do a deep work in each and every one of us. And so, Lord, help us today. Help us today by your grace, God, to yield ourselves to you, to actually relinquish control of our lives and relinquish um, this denial of sin and of wounds and of trauma and of shame. God, I pray that you would give us the courage to acknowledge these things that you really want to take a deep dive with us into so that we can experience the abundance of our salvation, the real genuine abundance that we can have in your son Jesus who has loved us and died for us. Help me, God, to preach your word today with clarity, precision, and Lord, we trust that you will do something in our hearts right now. In your name we pray, amen. So the first question I want to ask is what's Jesus trying to prove in these miracles? and these incredible things that he's doing here today. And I use that, that, that word prove purposely. Jesus is really trying to prove something here. Nothing that you see or that, that Don read for us is, is an accident. It's not happenstance that Jesus just feeds the 5,000. It's not just a coincidence that he's walking on water. He sets these situations up. It's his plan. It's his idea. In verse 4, he asks Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Looking at I mean, the text says 5,000 men. That means not women and children. So we're talking like 15,000 people here. Jesus is saying, how are we going to feed all these people? All right, so Jesus obviously has something up his sleeve. He's trying to, to um, force this situation that, where he would have to provide. In verses 15 and 16, we read that Jesus, he goes away by himself to the countryside to pray, leaving the disciples by themselves. They have to travel across the Sea of Galilee by themselves. That's purposeful. Jesus isn't with them. He has to meet up with them later, so he's going to walk on water and go find where they're at. So everything you're seeing here is on purpose. These are not just miracles. These are statements. That's why John calls it a sign, the feeding of the multitude. It's a sign. It's an act that points to something beyond itself, a spiritual reality that is within Jesus, within union with him. So that's what I want you to see first, that Jesus is trying to prove something. So what's he trying to prove? All right, let's put the pieces together. <clears throat> John wants us to understand that these miracles are happening within the backdrop of the Passover week. In verse 4, it says, Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. That's not just a time stamp. That's not just something John deposits in there to let us know the chronology of this whole thing. John wants us to see that Jesus is doing these miracles within the backdrop of the Passover. Now, what is the Passover, mind you? The Passover is the yearly celebration of Israel where they would 
recall and remember God's faithfulness, how he brought them out of slavery, how he brought them out of Egypt and made them an actual people, gave them the law, made them a kingdom of people. They were slaves, but now they're a kingdom. He performed that great exodus act, and Passover is also a looking forward to the future. This anticipatory meal where they would think to themselves, God's going to perform an even greater exodus. There's something even better than that exodus through Moses that is to come one day. And so Jesus is performing these miracles against the backdrop of that, the Passover, this time of remembering what God has done and what he will do. So what does Jesus do then? First, he multiplies five barley loaves and two fish in verse 9. And so what is he trying to do there? What's he trying to communicate through that act? Verse 14 tells us, go there. It says, When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. This crowd, they know that this miracle is a message. They know that this miracle is a statement. And so they say, this is the prophet. Now, why would they say that? It's because in Deuteronomy chapter 18, in your Old Testament, Moses, as he's giving the people of Israel the law, a second time reading it aloud for them, to prepare them to enter into the promised land, he tells them in Deuteronomy 18, the Lord will raise up from among you a prophet like Moses, a, a future Moses, an even better Moses, who will lead you and who will guide you. And so the crowd here is saying, this is that Moses. This is that prophet from Deuteronomy 18 we were told about. Now, why would they connect those dots? Why would they think that this is the prophet Moses was talking about? Because here's Jesus who is providing bread in the wilderness for the people of God during Passover. Just like Moses provided manna for the people of God in the wilderness after they were exited from Egypt as they went to the promised land. The connections are are one for one. We're supposed to see the very clear parallel. They get it, we should get it. So they understand that Jesus is saying, I am that prophet. I am the true and better Moses who's going to bring about that final great exodus. But then he walks on the water. And here's what's interesting about this passage, this chapter six. It's a long, long, long chapter. But most of the the verses in our chapter six are dedicated to the bread. Jesus talks about the bread. That's going to be all next week too. So it's a lot of content about the bread. John puts in here now this portion about walking on water. It's not a one-off. It's not random. What this is, is purpose to do is sort of buttress the whole message here that Jesus is revealing in the feeding of the 5,000. It's, it's meant to be read together. And so what would they be thinking? What, what should we be thinking as we see Jesus walking on water? Well, John writes in verse 17 that it was dark. It was dark. Now you might gloss over that. I might gloss over that. But in John's gospel, he uses this imagery of darkness to convey negative things like unbelief, sin, wickedness. Here, it's a perilous, dangerous situation where the disciples are, are um, sailing in the Sea of Galilee. Sea of Galilee is six miles underneath the waterline. And so what would happen is wind gusts would come through violently down into the, into the, into the, into the um, dip it would create this, this massive storm all of a sudden out of nowhere. There's no way to predict it. It just happened. So no matter how good of a fisherman you were, like these disciples, you'd just be caught in the storm sometimes. And so they're in this perilous, dangerous situations. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And then John writes this in verse 19. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. They were frightened, but he said to them, It is I... Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at land to which they were going. And now again, with the Passover in mind here, we're supposed to read this in light of that. And this is on the heels of that story where Jesus is the true and better Moses, where Jesus is giving the true manna, like the, the real bread from God for God's people. He says, it is I, as he shows up to this boat with his disciples. And if you were to translate that literally from the Greek, the original language, it's I am. Now, where do we find that in the Old Testament? Why is that significant at all? It's because in Exodus 33 and 34, when God is leading the people out of Egypt and to the promised land, he reveals his name as Yahweh. Yahweh is the name of God. And Yahweh, if you translate it literally, it's I am. 
So Jesus is really making a statement here. He's showing up to the disciples in the middle of this dangerous, dark, perilous situation. He says, I am, and then immediately a miracle happens. If you didn't catch that, they're transported to the shore immediately. Snap his finger, they're at their final destination. I think what we're supposed to see here is this condensed Exodus experience. Jesus is God. He's delivering his people from darkness and peril, bringing them to safety just like he did with Israel when he delivered them from Egypt and brought them to the promised land. So what is Jesus proving about himself? What are we supposed to see here? That he is the fulfillment of this feast, of this celebration called the Passover. He is the true, real exodus. So what does this mean then? So what? Cool connection, Joe. It's important, and here's why. Salvation in Jesus then means that he is a surprising feast in the wilderness. Salvation in Jesus means that he is true rest. He is the better Moses, provides the better feast, leads the people out of distress into real rest. Now, John's gospel, uh, salvation, when we talk about salvation, it It certainly includes forgiveness. It certainly includes atonement. Those things are there, but they're actually not the emphasis in the gospel of John. John, when he talks about salvation, he he really talks about it in a more experiential way. It's like, what does it mean to be forgiven? What's that like? What does that feel like? What does it mean to to have the wrath of God diverted away from us? What now is opportune for us? What are we invited into? What is the salvation experience like. That's what John is concerned about. So he wants us to see that the, the experience of salvation, what it's like to be united to Jesus, what's it like to walk with him the rest of our days, it's like a feast, this incredible feast that we did not expect. Now, one detail here I want to emphasize, which I skipped over purposefully. I want to save it here for like the knockout punch here, okay? In verse 14, go back there with me. It says this. Actually, I don't have it written down here for me. So I'm just going to tell you what it is. Jesus, he exponentially multiplies the bread so much so that there are how many baskets left over? Twelve. Now, is that accidental? Not at all. Because there's 12 tribes of Israel. So Jesus is trying to communicate again something here. What is he trying to communicate? That after he feeds 15,000 people on the countryside, he still has enough left over for every single tribe of Israel. It's like in Jesus, he is not just sufficient, he is more than enough. There's more than enough of Jesus so everybody gets in on him, okay? He gives And then there's more left over. So when we talk about salvation and what's that like, it's this abundant surplus life source that is found only in Jesus, the true and better Moses, the great I am, the very realization of centuries of Passover feasts. The life found in Jesus is more than enough. It's it's such a vitality that we cannot exhaust it. So this is what Jesus focuses on the rest of the chapter. So later on in chapter 6, this chapter, he says a statement like this. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Never hunger, never thirst if you come to me. Remember, John uses symbols, metaphors to get across these spiritual realities. Life in Jesus, walking with him, being saved by him is like having bread that fills you up forever because the one who's giving it, the very bread of life himself, is more than enough. That's what Jesus wants to show us. Pretty incredible, huh? Pretty cool. Now, why doesn't it always feel like that? Right? Why doesn't it feel like that? I don't know about you guys, but my walk with the Lord, it, it sometimes can be like that when the stars align, but like, 24-7, 24-7, seven days a week, year by year, each passing. Eh. This feels like, you know, it's in my hands one moment and out, out the next. What, what's going on? Why would we say, I'm not feasting? It doesn't feel like I'm feasting. I believe in this passage. Jesus shows us a few reasons, or one reason why that might be the case, why it doesn't feel like we're feasting, and then he gives us a few other reasons, a few other ways that we can feast. 
how we can get in on this reality that there is actually abundant life in Jesus. So let's first look at the wrong response. Why this might be the case. Why you're not feasting. Why doesn't it feel like that? It's because we look to Jesus for a quick fix. Quick fix. That's the wrong response. Go back to verses 1 and 2 at the beginning, and you'll notice how the story starts. It says this, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing. Now, these miracles are incredible. They're meant to be seen. There's nothing wrong with being astounded and attracted to these miracles. That's what Jesus is doing. He's trying to make a statement in them. He wants people to be viewing them. But where things go wrong is when we only view the miracles instead of ponder the miracles. Most of the time, his Jewish community, who is viewing these miracles, only ever does that. It never gets to the point where it becomes pondering, internalizing, asking the right questions, asking good questions about what Jesus is doing. There's a difference between viewing and pondering, and they only ever viewed. Most of them only ever viewed. And so what happens then, if you only ever view and don't ponder, is you'll interpret Jesus' miracles through your lens, through your agenda. So they saw these miracles as reasons to get excited about the possibility that Jesus was a Messiah, the Messiah, but the one to their liking, the one that they wanted on their own terms, which is why what happens next after Jesus feeds the multitudes in verses 14 and 15. It says, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who has come into the world, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew. So what happens after they exclaim, this is the prophet, they move to coronate him, to make him king. And listen, it's Passover, which means all the Jews from the surrounding regions have come to to the capital city, Jerusalem, at this time. They have hundreds of thousands of Jews here right now. They can take Rome. Rome can't stop an uprising if it happens right now. And so they move. Right now, we're going to make Jesus king. He's going to establish our kingdom. He's going to bring us back national glories and give us security. We're no longer going to be under the thumb of those evildoer, wicked Romans. He's going to be our king to our liking and on our terms So do you see what they're they're thinking Jesus is going to do for them? Solve the immediate problem? Give relief to the immediate situation? The quick fix? That's what they hope from Jesus. That's what they want from Jesus. They don't understand that as the better Moses, as the prophet, that he has come to bring about a better exodus than that. See, they're thinking too small. They expect an exodus from a situation. He's bringing an exodus from sin, from slavery. But they want the median problem solved. So friends, you have to realize that Jesus is not going to simplify your life. Jesus offers rest, but that is not the same thing as ease. He's not going to give a quick fix. In fact, when you say yes to Jesus and begin walking with him, In a sense, things get better, but also they get harder. Do you know why this is the case? And you might find this out as you go a few years into walking with Jesus. It gets harder because Jesus is after that real exodus, the release, the liberation of you from your sin and struggle. Not a situation, not a quick fix. Jesus wants to go deeper, and that's why it's harder, because he is asking you, leading you, Turn your attention towards those things that you're burying deep down inside of you. Those wounds, sin that you have done, sin that has been, has been done to you. Jesus wants to address those things. Bring about real freedom there on the deepest levels of who you are so it's not easier. It does get better, but it, necessar- it doesn't necessarily get easier. So maybe the reason why you're not feasting right now. It doesn't feel like your relationship with Jesus has ever been like it's feasting on abundant bread from heaven is because you're expecting him to do something that he never signed up for. He's not going to give you a quick fix. He's not going to release you from a hard situation necessarily. That's not why he's disrupted your life and come into your life. You're misunderstanding that commitment to Jesus is commitment to a cross. It's commitment to sanctification. It's commitment to death and resurrection daily. I die to self and I'm raised up new. (laughs) 
week to week. So following Jesus might be harder than you thought it would be because there's no quick fix. But the secret is this. Here's what you ought to know. The hard stuff is the good stuff. Because that's what Jesus wants to use to bring about that salvation experience, to bring about that reality of exodus in your life. You know, you, you, do you want to feast on the bread of heaven? If you're asking Jesus to take away the thing that's problematic in your life, the quick fix, you're asking him to take away the thing that he's going to use to, to set the table for you, to invite you to that feast on the bread of heaven. You can't have both the quick fix and the feast. He uses the problem to bring about abundant life. And I think we should see that in this passage, actually. So that wrong response is quick fix, but the right response is, firstly, to embrace weakness. Embrace your weakness, embrace your limitations, embrace the struggle. That's what we're going to see. So each one of us, uh, we don't like weakness. None of us like weakness. Jeff Bezos, uh, he's investing tons of money into this company that's trying to, to find immortality, to, to reverse aging. I read an article about it a few years ago, and the article ends by saying, young people want to be rich, rich people want to be young. We don't like weakness. We don't like limitations. We don't like not being in control of our life, but each one of us have weaknesses, and that's what Jesus wants to use to set the table and bring about the abundant feast. So look what Jesus does here in verses 5 through 9. He wants to demonstrate that he is more than enough through weakness. Verse 5, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little But one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Five barley loaves, this is the the bread of the common people, of the poor. Two fish, this is like sardines. It's nothing. What is this for so many people? Great question. Yet Jesus multiplies it exponentially and feeds the multitudes. What Jesus wants us to see is that weakness is used to bring about his abundance. Do you feel weak? Do you struggle? Do you, do you feel the limitations of your humanity and your frailty and your fallenness? Do you? That's okay. Because that's the good stuff. That's where Jesus wants to set the table for you. So you can have the bread of heaven. Uh, Jean Venier it was a humanitarian in the 20th century. He committed his life to helping the mentally handicapped. And he says this about weakness. Weakness carries with it a secret power. The one who is weaker can call forth powers of love in the one who is stronger. That is why Jesus is not going to provide the quick fix. He wants us to be weak so we can call on him who is stronger. Isn't this what 1 Corinthians 12 says that we read this morning. Three times I pleaded with the Lord that he would take this thorn from me, but he says, no. Why? My grace is sufficient for you. My power is realized, felt, made known to your soul in your weakness. So I'll boast, meaning I'll own, I'll leverage, I'll embrace all the more my weaknesses so the power of Christ may rest upon me. Do you see the pattern here? What Jesus wants for us. If you're asking for the quick fix, you are totally undercutting the life that can be found in Jesus. Psalm 23. You're my good shepherd. So where are you going to take me, good shepherd? Into the valley of the shadow of death. You prepare a table before me. That sounds great in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. The overflowing cup is at that feast that is in the presence of your enemies in the valley of the shadow of death. This is where Jesus shows up and invites you to feast on him. Now, <clears throat> how does this work? And, and dated, I know this is all theoretical. And I think you're intrigued. So what do we do now? What's Jesus calling us to do? 
And I think actually Jesus shows us himself here in this passage. He's a model for us. Look at verses 14 and 15. When the people saw that he had done what he had done, they said, this indeed is a prophet who's coming to the world. So what does Jesus do? After they try to force him to be king, it says, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. The right response to Jesus being our true exodus and our true rest is to embrace solitude. To embrace solitude. That's what Jesus models for us. Now don't forget that Jesus has already faced this temptation at least once that we know of. You remember when he starts his ministry? The devil meets him in the wilderness and the devil tempts him and says, you can have this kingdom. You can, you can have everything you want, all the glory, Jesus, if you just bow your knee to me. The, the shortcut to glory, the easy way out. It's been tempted. Jesus has been tempted in this arena already. And so what does he do in that instance? You remember? He fasts and prays for 40 days in resistance to the enemy. The same temptation is happening here. Here's the crowds. Thousands of people flocking him and they're going to make him king. This is his destiny. This is his birthright as the Messiah who he withdraws again to find solitude with the Father. This is Jesus in his humanity, 100% God, but choosing to live in the weakness of humanity. Not with sin. Jesus never with sin, but certainly feeling the limitations of the human experience. Here's his easy way out. So what's his response? I'm going to get alone with the Father. This is a model for us to embrace still solitude with the Father. Blaise Pascal in the 17th century, before phones, before internet, before all that stuff, he says this in the 17th century, all of humanity's problems come from man's inability to be alone in his chambers. We can't be alone with our own thoughts. We, we prefer distraction. We like escape. Because when we are alone with our own thoughts, we have to face those things, don't we? We have to actually acknowledge the wounds, the trauma, the sin, the embarrassing things, the memories, the regrets, all of those things that we want to silence and stuff down. When you get alone with the Father, you know what happens? They begin to surface. But again, that's where Jesus works. In those weaknesses, in that frailty, and in that sin. So solitude, it does mean that we are alone with our own thoughts, and that might be scary. It probably is scary for a lot of us in here, and that makes a lot of sense. But really, the truth is, although we are to embrace solitude, we're not alone. Because if you're indwelt by the Spirit of God, He is with you. Which means you don't face those thoughts alone. You don't face those memories alone. You don't face the acknowledgement of just how weak you are alone. So here's what we do. You ready? We pour our hearts out in prayer to God. We spread out our Bibles before us to hear from God in His Word. And then we respond in more prayer. We actually have this dynamic relationship with God. We pour our hearts out, invite Him into our hearts through His Word, take on His truth, and then respond in prayer. If you practice this kind of solitude, you are presenting your heart to the Father, inviting Him in to comfort you, and then yielding to His love and to His care. 1 Peter 5 says this, "'Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God.'" so that at the proper time he might exalt you, listen, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. You're not alone. You have a caring father who is capable of handling every single problem you have within you. In fact, he likes that. So perhaps, for example, a weakness you live with is words that were spoken to you at some point in the past that you still think about to this day, that hurt you, that condemn you, that haunt you. And so what this looks like is you present that to the Father. 
You invite his word to confront that memory, to confront those words. Then you choose to warm your heart to his truth so you can believe his words more than you believe those words of condemnation from the past. But there's one little word there in verse 15 that we should uh, look at. And it's that Jesus withdrew again. Again. Which means... It's not a one-time event. We're not even treating this as a quick fix, guys. Solitude, stillness with the Father that brings about actual transformation and liberation, it's again and again and again. This is not just a one-time commitment. This is a lifestyle. Stillness and solitude with the Father. Another theologian says this, about solitude. Solitude is not a private therapeutic place that happens once. Solitude is the furnace of transformation. Without solitude, we we remain victims of our society and continue to be entangled in the illusions of the false self. You will constantly be wounded, constantly be a victim, constantly be at the mercy of your situation and your own sin, your own lies that you believe unless you practice ongoing Solitude, that's how transformation happens. So do you get alone with the Father? Do you approach? He is your Father. If you have trusted in Christ to be the reason why God loves you and accepts you, He is now your Father. Wow. Do you get alone with Him? Will you make solitude and real encounter a lifestyle now? But let me tell you one other thing now. You have to prepare for this. You do. You have to prepare for solitude to make it really effective and powerful. In Hebrews chapter 4, the author, he's actually talking about promised land rest. That's what our salvation experience is, is patterned after. So it really fits with his sermon. He says in Hebrews chapter 4, strive to enter that rest. Think about that. The rest that is available in Jesus, we are commanded to strive to enter that rest, which means there's some discipline involved. There's some tough choices involved. You have to prepare things in such a way where you can actually enter that rest and get something out of it. We usually think that settling into the rest of the Father means we do nothing. But what it actually means is we discipline ourselves and prepare for that rest. So if you have little kids in here, you know that if you're going to go on vacation with your kids, if you don't prepare, there will be no vacation at all. I mean, you might go, but it will not be restful at all. So what do you have to do when you have little kids? You have to pack, and that is a mammoth. You have to think about every single thing your kids will need a week away. Pack their bags, make a list, don't forget a thing. And if you don't prepare when it comes to leave and you're frenzied and throwing things in the car, throwing things in your bag, you're going to leave in a bad mood and get in a fight on the way to the airport or you're in a fight on the car ride to where your destination is. You're going to forget something. You're not going to have something you need during the week. It's not going to be rest. True rest only happens with preparation thoughtfulness. So you, ha- so you have to have a plan. Do you have a plan to get alone with the Father? It won't happen without it. So Rebecca and I are at a point in life where the only time that we are going to get alone with the Father is early, early in the morning. So we have to prepare. We clean the house in the evening, pick up as much as we can so the house is decent and in order. We try to go to bed at a decent hour, We don't stay up late and binge watch. We discipline ourselves. We have limits. We prep the coffee. I measure out the beans. I put the coffee in the percolator. It's all ready to go. We set our alarm before the kids will get up, long before the kids will get up, and we spend time in the darkness and in the stillness of the early morning in the Word and in prayer. Rebecca has her order of worship, her study. I have my order of worship. You have to prepare to make this meaningful. It's not works-based salvation, but it, but it is obedience. 
If you want to tap in to the bread of life and experience that healing and transformation, you have to prepare. Now, I know what you're thinking right now, okay, because I've thought it before, and there are times where I still think it. You're thinking, I'm too busy, and I'll be too tired. <clears throat> I would say, you're too busy, and you're too tired to not do this. You can't afford to go without solitude with the Father. Martin Luther, the, re- the reformer, he's famous for saying, I have so much to do today that I need to spend three hours in prayer. At another time, he says, I spend two hours in prayer every morning, otherwise the devil will have victory. See, weakness, you might think weariness, weariness, exhaustion, will come from this. Weariness does not come from the work and demand of a disciplined life. It comes from a soul that is without transformation, which takes a toll on your body and yourself. There's a great book that all therapists have to read called The Body Keeps the Score. And here's what the author says. Traumatized people chronically feel unsafe inside their bodies. The past is alive in the form of gnawing interior discomfort. Their bodies are constantly bombarded by visceral warning signs and in an attempt to control these processes, they often become expert at ignoring their gut feelings and a numbing awareness of what is played out on the inside. They learn to hide from themselves. Trauma victims cannot recover until they become familiar with and befriend the sensations in their bodies. Being frightened means that you live in a body that is always on guard. Angry people live in angry bodies. The bodies of abuse victims are tense and defensive until they find a way to relax and feel safe. The point is that this discipline... This preparation that we have to do to have time with the Father means that you might have less sleep. It's a call to greater effort and intentionality, but that won't make you weary. Not doing this will make you weary because you will be bombarded and afflicted by all the things left unchecked inside of you. Proverbs 4, 20 through 23 says this, My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. What he's saying here, what Solomon is saying here is literally Embracing solitude with intentionality and preparation has this healing effect from the inside out. It really does. So are you carrying stress in your body, pain in your body? Do you feel off? Do you feel angry? Solitude is the remedy. It will literally heal you from the inside out. You'll be more fortified, more resilient, more stable, with more discipline in your life, not less. Let me charge you now, husbands. Let me charge you now, fathers. You specifically here, listen to me. Do you want your wives to follow you? Do you want your wives to respect you? Do you want your children, your family to follow you? You set the pace in your home. You are the leader who models this. You create this expectation and then lead your family into it. Do you want to be able, with Joshua, to say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord? Then you have to be able to say with Paul, follow me as I follow Jesus. Embracing solitude. Husbands, fathers, it's on you. Lead your families. Lead your wives in this. And I promise you, not just transformation in you will occur, but this deep transformation will occur within your family. Lastly, this abundant salvation experience that we're invited into, how do we get in on it? We embrace the weaknesses. We embrace what Jesus is doing in our lives gladly. The disciples show us this. Remember when Jesus approaches the boat after walking on water, it says that they gladly took him into the boat after he says, it is I, do not be afraid. They gladly took him into the boat. Now we've heard this story a million times of Jesus walking on water. But don't forget how terrifying this would be to see a man walking on water towards you in the dark, stormy night. And this is why Jesus says, it is I, do not be afraid. 
Interestingly, he's not talking about the storm. He's talking about their response to him walking on water. They're more afraid of him than they are of the danger of the situation, which means this must be pretty freaky. This must be pretty surprising and terrifying. Let me tell you what's scary about Jesus, and this is real. You can't fit him into a neat category. Like he's not, you can't domesticate him. He's not manageable. He's going to do things in your life, bring things into your life that are surprising and unexpected that he hasn't good intentions for, but it's not something you have ever done yourself. (laughs) It's not something you would ever manufactured for yourself, but it's what he is doing. Now think about this with me. Every time we see Jesus doing something on the water, there's always this surprise and astonishment effect that happens with it. In the storm we see in Mark chapter 4, he he quiets the winds and the waves immediately, and the disciples say to one another, who is this then, that the winds and the seas even obey him? Remember, he tells the disciples, let down your nets on the other side of the boat, and they bring it up with so much fish that the nets begin to rip, and here now in this story, he's walking on water to them, and they're actually terrified of him. The point of all these scenes is that Jesus is full of surprises. He does things that are unexpected. You cannot fit him into a nice and neat category. The Chronicles of Narnia, my favorite part of that story, I think, is when Susan and Lucy, two of the protagonists in the story, they meet Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, and they find out Aslan, the Jesus character in the story, is a lion, and they say, he's a lion, is he safe? And the beavers say, oh no, he's not safe, but he is good. Your job, like the disciples, is to gladly accept Jesus into your boat. Yes, the walking on water, storm-calming, fish-telepathic Jesus, who is not manageable, who does surprising things that you would never have done for yourself. Now listen, gladly accept what Jesus is doing in your life. Gladly accept it. If you only ever accept without gladness, you'll become a cynic and a grumbler. If you only ever are glad without acceptance, you'll become superficial and without character. You must do both. So here's my question for you. Will you deeply bow to what Jesus is doing in your life and accept what he is doing in your life instead of resisting And a part of deeply bowing to what Jesus is doing in your life is thanking him for it and praising him for it, gladly accepting both what he is doing and his intentions for it. There comes a point in every Christian's life where they hit a wall and they realize it's my will versus God's will and one of us is going to win out. Everyone crosses that threshold at some point. And at that point, you must release your idea of happiness, relinquish control, stop angling for desired outcome of your life, and totally trust that whatever God is doing, whatever he decides to do from here on out is wiser, it's better, it's actually safer than what you would have constructed for yourself, even if it's radically different. Gladly accept That's how you begin to know this abundant feast that Jesus says he is. Now in conclusion, Revelation 2 says that to those who overcome, Jesus says, I will give them the hidden manna. Hidden manna. Now I want some of that. How about you? You want some of that hidden manna? I do. I don't watch March Madness because it's stressful. But I do know this, that teams that make it far put it all together at the right time. They peak at the right time and they're, they're clicking on all cylinders and it's the whole thing is humming. That's the teams that make it far. That's the teams that succeed. The ones who bring it all together. You and I need to bring it all together the glad acceptance, still solitude, 
not looking to Jesus as a quick fix, accepting those weaknesses. We need to bring it all together so that we can experience the fullness of life that is found in Jesus. So here's the questions I leave you with right now. Will you begin this week? Will you begin this week no longer resisting what Jesus is doing in your life, but embracing it, particularly through stillness with the Father? Not perfection. There's there's no measure of your worth in doing this, but I'm just asking you, will you begin? Walking forward in faith, saying, I'm going to make this a lifestyle. Even if I'm stumbling forward, even if it's two steps forward, one step back, will you begin this week having stillness with the Father? Will you have some accountability? Is there somebody that you know and trust who you can say, I need to do this? Can you please ask me how it's going? Or maybe we can do this together and check up on each other. Will you invite accountability into your life? Guys, I don't want to just come up here and say, like, I want what we're doing right now to be effective and transformative and matter. So these questions, take them with you. Will you begin this week? Will you have accountability? Will you ask for help? If you don't know where to begin, will you ask somebody for help? Maybe someone who's a little farther along with you in their walk with the Lord. Will you say, teach me, show me the ropes. Can you give me some suggestions? Will you begin? Will you have accountability? Will you ask for help? There are dimensions of our glorious King that will never be revealed to the casual, disinterested worshiper. And so, will you spend time with the Father in the secret place, accepting your weakness and letting that be the furnace of your transformation? The man of heaven is at stake. That feast, that table that is set before your enemies in the valley of the shadow of death, that's the invitation. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we come to you giving thanks for your word. Your word is true, is what we need. It gives us the instruction so that we can have a vibrant relationship with you, and that is our heart's cry right now. Like a deer that pants for waters, O Lord, our soul thirsts for you. Where else can we go? Only you have the words of life. In your presence, Lord, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In you, Jesus, there is knowledge of the breadth, height, length, depth. There is the possibility of being filled with the fullness of God. We come to you, God, who can do more than we can ever ask or imagine according to the power that is at work within us. To you be the glory, Jesus, in your church and in this age, throughout all generations, we pray. Be with us, God. Amen.